0: Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates.
1: The supreme contribution of the new world to the old is the contribution of religious liberty. This is the chiefest contribution that America has made thus far to civilization, and historic justice compels me to say that it was preeminently a Baptist contribution. The impartial historian, whether in the past, present, or future, will ever agree with our American historian, Mr. George Bancroft, when he says, freedom of conscience, unlimited freedom of mind, was the first trophy of the Baptists. And such historian will concur with the noble John Locke, who said the Baptists were the first propounders of absolute liberty, just and true liberty, equal and impartial liberty. Thus spoke George W. Truitt, famed pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, on a Sunday afternoon, May 16, in 1920, from the steps of the Washington, D.C. Capitol, to a a crowd of around 15,000 people. This speech cast a long shadow over Baptist engagement in the political realm during the 20th century, especially as it relates to religious liberty. Today, I'm joined by the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is a well-published author and a frequent commentator on issues relating to religious liberty and the right person to chat with today. Welcome, Dr. Moore, to This Week in
0: Church History. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be with you.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to have you uh, be able to talk about this particular event. It seems uh, so uh, amazing, this, this image in 1920 of a pastor standing giving, uh, on the steps of the Capitol, giving this amazing oration relating to uh, religious liberty. Um, why was religious liberty such a theme for Truett and actually many Baptists in his day?
0: Well, I think there are a number of reasons, one of them being that it's an essential part of the, the Baptist uh, DNA. I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, the reason... Um, that Baptists emerged in England and then uh, in the colonies. Right. Uh, so there were there's a, a sense of that that continuity that's there, and then there were also uh, concerns that were happening as the country was growing, as the country was urbanizing. Um, of, of whether this was going to continue to be the case. So you can you can see some of the concerns, I mean, not just religious liberty, but you can see concerns taking place uh, at the beginning of that roaring 20s uh, time about all of the aspects of American life and American freedom. Is, is this going to be forgotten? Are we going to lose our character as a, as a country when it comes to some of these constitutional guarantees there was a lot of that concern uh, going on
1: it's it's interesting too when you when you look at in 1920 here's truitt he's at i mean the first baptist church dallas right mm-hmm. such such a huge platform uh at that standpoint yet he already was a, a well respected leader i mean woodrow wilson had personally selected truitt uh, as one of 20 pastors he sent uh overseas to preach to to men serving their country during World War One, um, he he had this persona and uh, really this gravitas that allowed him to speak effectively uh, to this issue. When he's talking about religious liberty, what does he mean by religious liberty?
0: Well, I think it's important to to take in, in into uh, consideration the context of what an unusual moment it was. Mm-hmm. So Truett is kind of right between the the early Baptist uh, days where Baptists essentially were marginalized uh, dissenters uh, having to uh, having to argue for not uh, having to have a license to preach against the state churches um, in the in the states to the the time where this was the moment where uh, First Baptist Dallas really is a sort of a metaphor here right. of a place that was established, respected, uh, so that you were able to, to stand on the steps of the Capitol without, um, uh, it, there wasn't spectacle, there wasn't uh, inflammatory rhetoric. So it, it wasn't the sort of thing where people are lining up uh, in the way that someone might now to right. say what's, what's about, what crazy thing is about to happen. No <laughs> one was expecting that. And also because Truett himself, I think, wasn't just the moment. I think Truett himself worked really hard uh, not to demagogue. Mm. It doesn't mean that he didn't have flaws, um, and, and it doesn't mean that he wasn't like all of us, to some degree, a man of his time. But he really did seek to persuade people, and mm. I think you can see that in that address. This isn't right. just – um, he's not just speaking to people his people who are overhearing him. He he really is speaking to those who might not have any concern for religious freedom or who might even be opposed to it. Right. So I think the moment is really important there. But also because what Truett is, it seems to be really careful to do in that address is to define religious uh, freedom in ways that are not near self-interest. Mm. And, and that's what um, I think really almost in every era, someone who's not familiar with why religious freedom matters will always want to say, well, yes, you're wanting to advocate for yourself or for your institutions and your organizations, but not for other people. Right. And true. It was really careful uh, to come in and say this is for everybody, including uh, people that I would disagree with on everything. Right.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. He even points to atheists as uh, deserving yeah. of liberty uh, in, in the midst of this. It's it's fascinating. This this um, address happens on on May 16. It's a few weeks before the Southern Baptist Convention. Gambrel is the president of uh, the convention, and he makes sure that this address gets printed and distributed amongst attendees at the SBC. Uh, in an in, in, with a with a bit of a uh, an introduction by him stating that this is one of the most important things for us in our day and our time to understand how religious freedom works uh, for us and for uh, our churches. What other philosophies in the uh, early twentieth century were were pressing against uh Baptist ideals of uh, religious liberty or religious freedom that uh, that really made Truett feel like this is what he needed to address, that that he needed to put forward on this uh, occasion?
0: Well, I think there were some legitimate concerns, some illegitimate concerns, which is always easy to see looking from this vantage point that it was at the time. But there were some people who were really concerned, I think, illegitimately on the basis of uh, growing Catholic uh, immigrant populations, uh, especially in the cities. Yeah. So if you think about what happened, uh, for instance, in the 1928, just a few years after this presidential campaign with uh, Al Smith as the Democratic nominee, was the first Roman Catholic uh, major party nominee. And the assumption was this is the Vatican's way of uh, taking control of the levers of power in the United States for Mm. a lot of people. And then that's repeated later on in 1960 with John F. Kennedy. Right. I mean, now it's easy for us to look at it and say the Pope doesn't even have an authoritarian hold on Rome, much less <laughs> on <laughs> any other country. But at the time, that was a real, you know, that was a real concern. Um, so I think that that proved not to be uh, a concern. But there were legitimate concerns about you have a country that's growing up. And it's getting larger. It's getting, in some ways, more centralized. And it's easy to forget about uh, rights that have been earned through uh, a lot of struggle uh, earlier on. Right. So it's it's sort of similar to. Um, I was just reading uh, a sociologist. Uh, well, it was Richard Niebuhr, uh, arguing mid uh, mid twentieth century that it, it is inevitable almost that sets, S-E-C-T-S, sets yep. um, tend to lose the sense of vitality and concern for those, those major principles in the second or third generation, right. where people, you know, people just don't, they didn't have to go through uh, the, the, the cost of it. And so they tend to forget it. So I think that was of concern as well. And then you, you add to that what I think is interesting about the Truett address is the way that Truett actually is not talking about a social issue or a cultural issue. Hmm. The way that I think most people think when they think of uh, religious liberty, he's talking about a theological issue right. and a theological issue that is first order because it's uh, – a it's an implication of an understanding of the gospel. Right. So you see happening around, uh, around the same time, uh, E.Y. Mullins is, is working on his uh, understanding of soul competency, mm-hmm. which you know, is easily kind of caricatured and also easily sometimes misapplied. Right. But essentially what, what Mullins is trying to get at with soul competency is the judgment seat of Christ. Right. And so because uh, everyone comes before God one by one, uh, then there can't be proxy um, proxy um, judgment attorneys uh, before the judgment seat. Right. Which means there ought not to be interference uh, before that. So you, you think of that line that Truett says that is exactly right. And I think I think it is the most important thing if you had to boil religious liberty down to this, this would probably be the sentence, which is to say something like the law can't make people Christians. It can only make people hypocrites. Right. And so if you if you have an understanding of religion, that religion is just serving a social function, it's keeping you in line, it's propping up the social order, then you can have a you can have a mandated uh, religion, either culturally or, or legally. But if you think that the gospel is about actual faith, which has to be voluntary uh, and and has to be heart transformative, then you can't do that through coercion. It it just doesn't result in, in the gospel. So in that sense, if you just have religious liberty as, well, this is something we care about, it's one of our distinctives. Then you're going to have it as it's going to be a, a relatively minor thing that just comes up when when somebody's interfering with it. But if you understand it the way I think Truett did and the way Mullins did, which is to say, if you if you get rid of a, this understanding of religious liberty, that's because you've gotten rid of something really essential about the gospel. Then that changes the way it, it works.
1: It's it's interesting in his speech too because he goes through and he differentiates between toleration and religious liberty. I think sometimes we conflate the two. Can't we just all get along type thing? Uh, This is a a quote from him. He says, Our contention is not for mere toleration, but for absolute liberty. There is a wide difference between toleration and liberty. Toleration implies that somebody falsely claims the right to tolerate. Toleration is a concession where liberty is a right. Toleration is a matter of expediency where liberty is a matter of principle. Toleration is a gift from man, while liberty is a gift from God, right? So he creates these beautiful contrasts to try to demonstrate the wide chasm, actually, between toleration and religious liberty and why we have to continue to make this claim uh, uh, in his day and actually even in our own day uh, today. With this type of understanding that he's putting between even toleration and religious liberty, uh, you know, one of his flaws, if we're looking back at it, Uh, today uh, would be, for all the claims of religious liberty, he doesn't seem to want to extend that to Catholics. Why not? I mean, we've kind of hinted at this already, but why this uh, really uh, strong concern about Catholics in America at the beginning of the 20th century?
0: Well, to be fair to him, um, he, he actually was much more defensive of Catholic religious liberty than than many of his peers would have been. Mm-hmm. I, mean, he, he, I think uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it may have been in that address. If not, it was somewhere else where he talked about the freedom of Catholics to have candles and, uh, and, and incense and, and the things that they have, even though he wouldn't agree with it. That's, that's kind of an unusual statement at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, nonetheless, I think that the problem is it's really similar. If you look at some of the conversations that have happened you know, in the post-September 11th, 2001 era over Islam, they're very, very similar to some of the dynamics that were going on around Catholicism at mm, that time, okay which which is to say, we're for religious liberty, but this isn't a religion. It's mm. a um, it's a political movement. It's pretending to be religion, but it really is is wanting to assert power. And uh, and those sorts of, of things, and then you can go through and and demonstrate because you can see uh, some Catholic authoritarian fascist uh, movements uh, around the world, uh, and there and there were, and of course, then you root it in the persecution that had come from uh, the Catholic Church against dissenters in the past. It's a really easy psychological move to get to. Therefore, you have forfeited your uh, religious liberty. Mm. Now, what 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 is inevitably the case in a fallen uh, human world is that um, uh, people who have been in the minority who then uh, ascend into the majority Mm -hmm. uh, often then lose their sense of um, of. coexistence with other people, their sense of understanding why freedom of conscience matters. I mean, that's a tendency for for everybody. Right. And I I mean, I was I was thinking about this last night because I'm in a I'm in a book club with a group of guys and um, all of us are Christian except for one uh, Jewish guy. And last night, we were, we were talking about the resurrection of Christ. We were reading a book together about the resurrection of Christ, and our Jewish friend was engaged. He was uh, involved in the conversation. And afterward, uh, one of us, a pastor, said, you know, I'm just really uh, thankful that you were willing to come in and, and talk about these things. And he said, well, I'm Jewish and an American. I'm used to being in the minority. Because I'm not shocked when I'm around people who disagree with me, and there's there's something about moving from that minority status into majority status um, that left to itself with fallen human nature often ends up in saying, "Let's find out who we can who we can exclude and who we can it can hem in," and that's why it takes a lot of constant reminders of, of why this is important to get away from that.
1: So obviously, I think that's something that would be a huge takeaway. I'm thinking for my listeners, uh, you know, what, is, what are some things that we uh, could learn in our own day from uh, a man like uh, George Truett, who, you know, is speaking this way 100 years ago, but his words seem timeless when you when you read them. Uh, what are some of the things that you would say that we should be taking away uh, thinking about religious liberty in our own day?
0: When you look at the things about Truett that do seem timeless, I mean, because as you and I mentioned, there are there are things that that one looks at and says, this seems um, to be a, a relic of its time. It doesn't seem to be completely consistent. The things that are timeless are the things that are uh, Older than just his moment. Mm. So you, you can see that Truett is building off of um, John Leland and Isaac Backus and Thomas Helwes and these, these earlier Baptist uh, figures who faced genuine persecution. Right. The, uh, Truett was not in any danger of anyone arresting him. Uh, at the Capitol or in Dallas or, or anywhere else. Right. These people were. So he's drawing off of uh, off of their reflections uh, there in a way that 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 makes it uh, more timeless. And so I think that that's one of the things that we have to constantly be doing is being aware enough. I mean, that's why this, this podcast that you do is important. One of the reasons why is because if you have an understanding of uh, church history, then you start to see some patterns emerging, right? you know, in, in ways that can start to feel familiar uh, to you. So, um, when you have, um, you know, you're, you're trying to uh, organize your people in your community to do evangelism with uh, Muslims, and there are some who would rather go to the city council and outlaw the the mosque and get it zoned <laughs> out of existence. Right. Then you can look back and say, okay, we have seen this before, and and we know where this ends, and where this ends is not not only is not good for us, but it also means that what you end up doing is keeping the gospel away from people for whom Jesus died. That's right. And instead saying to them, we want you to pretend like you're Christians. Right. And, you know, I saw a quote, um, someone was talking about some some uh, Christian uh, figure and whether or not it's fair to this person is beside the point. Um, it said that this person talks as though He would rather live in a neighborhood of atheists with Christmas trees than in a neighborhood with Sudanese Christians. Mm. And, you know, regard again, regardless of whether it was right in terms of what he was talking about with the person, there are a lot of people for whom that's the case. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of uh, pulling ourselves out of that to say, no. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh-huh. Which means we really don't want to try to get you in the situation where you think that lying about what you believe or how you practice is what we're after. Right. That's not what we're after. So if you know, if you see the history and you realize what that looks like, uh, then you can end up to say, OK, I hear what I'm I hear what I'm sounding like Mm. Uh, just like, you know, sometimes people will, you know, there are times when I will say something to my kids and I'll kind of laugh and say, I'm my dad. This is is exactly what my dad used to say or my grandmother or somebody. Uh, Sometimes you get in that, that mode where you say, Oh, wait, Uh, I I, I realize what I'm, what I'm saying here. Uh, So you look at, for instance, the, what, uh, was said about the early Baptists, uh, which is, well, this is anarchy. It's going to break down the social order. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the Munster Rebellion. We don't want that to happen again. Right. The Peasants' revolt. You know, so you have all of these bad scenarios in order to hem in religious freedom. If you know all of that and you start to recognize it, when when you inevitably start to, to – I mean none of us consistently – uh, live out the, the way of Christ, but it can help you to to hear yourself and to just step back and say, "Oh, wait a minute, what direction am I going right now?" That's
1: exactly right. So, if our listeners could pick up one book on religious liberty, what should they pick up?
0: I would say to go back to uh, some of the the, the early stuff, um, and, and some of it is a little hard to to get through for contemporary readers, but um, look at, at uh writings about the king being a man and not a god and mm-hmm. about how religious liberty really is a form of um, of deification and of idolatry. Or John Leland, who was a—I'm uh, here in my office in Washington right down the street from, from where Truett stood, and, and it's named Leland House after this Virginia Baptist uh, evangelist who— uh, actually is the reason why we have a first amendment because he was engaging with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, but there's a collection of his, his writings, um, that yeah, there are going to be some things that are unique to his time, but there's also, uh, a lot of really timeless principles in the way he's speaking to these issues.
1: That's great. Well, thank you, Dr. Moore, for joining us today. Uh, In our post Christian society, we really do appreciate all you do to keep religious liberty at the forefront during days when it seems like it's under attack uh, from all sides. In closing, I'd love to get another great quote from Truett here. He says, This Baptists have one consistent record concerning liberty throughout all their long and eventful history. They have never been a party to oppression of conscience, they have forever been the unwavering champions of liberty both religious and civil. Their contention now is, and has been, and please God must it ever be, that it is the natural and fundamental indefeasible right of every human being to worship God or not according to the dictates of his conscience. And as long as he does not infringe upon the rights of others, he is to be held accountable alone to God for all religious beliefs and practices. Listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of This Week in Church History.